Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. I think it's gotten a little bit cold today, so I'm going to pass you on to Alex. It has got cold uh, physically and and metaphorically as well because finally someone is going to explain to me the basics of the Cold War um, in easy steps. We have Ian Sanders with us today who is the host of the Cold War Conversations podcast. So he's exactly the man to do it. Ian, how are you? Where are you? How is lockdown? Um, I'm great, actually. I'm in Manchester. It's nice and sunny. It's colder here today than it was yesterday. Um, but lockdown's going okay. I mean, the, the great thing about, and you'll probably find this being podcasters yourself, is because everybody's at home, it's much easier to organise interviews. It is, yeah. We're, we're completely taken advantage. What with the grovelling and the, the gif of the Shrek cat begging, um, we've managed to find obviously loads of people doing absolutely nothing. Um, so how today is going to work, what we asked you to do was come up with like the half a dozen pivotal moments of the cold war and i know this this isn't exactly easy because you put this out to your followers um and everybody had a different opinion but we're going with your list today um and you're going to talk us through uh some of the main events and why they were pivotal and how they had a wider impact on the cold war so alina let's go which one are we going to do first uh, yeah, I'm also going to disagree, but that's a whole different other topic. We're doing Ian's talk today. It's not me. So we're going to start off with the Berlin blockade in 1948. Oh, but Alina, I, I like disagreements. That That's the, the, the food <laughs> the food of a podcast is having uh, lively discussion. But yeah, uh, the, the and this is difficult to split down into into six. But I think the Berlin blockade is... Uh, possibly the, the first major pivotal moment. Explain to us what it is and how it comes about. Right. Well, at the end of World War II, uh, the Soviets, the US, the British um, and the French are notionally still allies. They've both fought uh, Nazi Germany and defeated Nazi Germany. Um, but um, they, Europe is split between the areas that have been occupied by the Soviets during the course of the war and the areas occupied by the Western Allies. And Germany has been divided in half, well, it's been divided into occupation zones. Um, and the Soviets have got the eastern occupation zone, but in the middle of their zone is Berlin, which is also divided into occupation zones. So the allied occupation zones in Berlin are effectively an island 
in the middle of the Soviet occupation zone. Now, under the agreements with the Soviets, the Allies are allowed to run rail traffic and road traffic into Berlin, as well as um, fly aircraft in, in, into Berlin. But in 1948, the Soviets block the land corridors. Uh, so that was railway, road and canal access to all of the sectors that were under Western uh, blockade. And the, the Soviets had all, you know, were, were found what was really the, the term is West Berlin is the, is the Western zones in, in Berlin. But the, the Soviets had always thought of this as a real thorn in their side. Um, but they did offer to drop the blockade if the Allies withdrew the Deutschmark that had recently been introduced in, in West Berlin. Um, now this could have ended as a military confrontation, but what the, uh, Western Allies decided to do was to try and resupply Berlin by air. And this was unprecedented to fly, um, air, the number of aircraft that they required into Berlin to supply a city. Cause this was, was a city of, uh, at least a couple of million people and it needed coal. It needed salt. It needed all the components that you'd need to keep a city going. And, there wasn't really enough airfield. So an airfield was hurriedly built in the French sector at Tegel, which is now one of the, the well, it's about to close in favour of the, the revamped one in the former East, East Berlin. But that was the airport that was hurriedly built. But the, um, the Royal Air Force and the US Air Force flew around the clock, um, movement of aircraft to supply Berlin. They were even using flying boats, Sunderland flying boats, and landing them on the lakes in Berlin to uh, bring in supplies. And, and one of the interviews I did on Cold War Conversations with, with um, Gail Halverson, who's known as the Candy Bomber, um, and he's really famous because he was a US pilot flying into Berlin, and he used to drop sweets out of his aircraft to the West Berlin children as he came into land at Tempelhof um, airfield in in West Berlin. So th this is the one that I had as the, the major crisis. It was eventually resolved. The Soviets realized they weren't getting anywhere with this and eventually released the blockade in 1949. It started in, in 48. But it was important because it, it affirmed the Western determination to hang on to to West Berlin and not give it up to the Soviets, which would have potentially been the easy option there. Um Okay, moving on. This is a big one. Um, this might have been on my uneducated list if I'd done it. Uh, the Korean War, 1950 to 53. This is a big one. How do we end up with a war in Korea? Well, Korea, similar to Germany to some degree, was divided into uh, two zones of occupation after the uh, Japanese were defeated in, in 1945. So the Soviets administered the northern half and the Americans administered the, the southern half and in the northern half in classic Soviet style they established a um, Soviet state there under Kim Il-sung um, and a capitalist state um, under anti-communist leadership with a, a guy called Sigmund Rhee. Now both governments claim to be, you know, the official state of Korea, and they didn't. Neither accepted that the division was 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 permanent. And uh, North Korea invaded South Korea in 1950, 
and the United Nations put together a military operation to defend South Korea. Um, and the invasion initially, the North Korean invasion was really successful. They managed to um, push the UN troops into quite a small uh, perimeter at Pusan. Um, but then a amphibious landing was made further up the peninsula and that um forced the North Koreans to retreat and the uh, UN troops then advanced into North Korea but this this was a really destructive um, battle I think there was about 3 million deaths and the largest um, proportional number of civilians killed in either the in either World War Two or the Vietnam War I believe as well um, and so talk to us about what the wider impact is of the Korean War on the on the Cold War. I think the, the wider impact here is, is that this was an armed conflict. So this was the Cold War turning hot. Um, and really the, the only time where there was almost a direct confrontation. I mean, there were U.S. troops directly fighting Chinese troops. The Chinese came in on the side of the North Koreans to... Um, help push the Americans back. So there are American troops directly fighting communist uh, Chinese troops. And less known is there were Soviet pilots flying um, Korean jets directly against the Americans. So there was a direct conflict going on, albeit uh, somewhat covert, between the US and the Soviet Union. Um. I've got Hungary 1956 here. I mean, yeah, I would put something in before that, personally. But Go on, what would you have put, what would you have put in, Alina? I'm always intrigued to hear. I'd have put the Warsaw Pact in, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, I think, well, let, let me tell you why I've put Hungary in, that's probably the... Yeah, so, well, uh, well, hold on, let's, 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 let's do the uh, explanation, and then we can do a bit of an argument afterwards to why it kind of trumps the, the, the Warsaw Pact. So explain it to us. Okay, so Hungary in 1956 was a Soviet satellite country. So it was run very much on on communist lines. But there was a uh, revolution in October 1956, started with um, student protests. Um, and one of the demands of the students was the immediate uh, removal of Soviet troops and uh, election by secret ballot, which was obviously never going to fly with the Soviets. Um but what was interesting here is a new government was formed by former communists um, who uh, then managed to do a deal whereby the uh, Soviets actually withdrew from Hungary or withdrew from Bu- from Budapest. And uh, they thought that they'd won. They, they thought that they were actually going to, you know, be able to become a democratic nation. But shortly afterwards, the Soviets returned and there was really heavy fighting in uh, Budapest and uh, the the uprising was subsequently defeated. I see a pattern forming here. You like a bit of action rather than uh, a bit of politics, I think. Am I, would, I wrong? I wouldn't I wouldn't say that. I think, you know, that that some some of this 
you, you can't avoid uh, military actions in in some aspects of of the Cold War, but I I'm also interested in the in the civilian experience and the the you know the what happened to the ordinary people as well. So, uh, but yeah, it's safe to say I have got an interest in the military as well. No, no, no. Do you know what? Both me and Alex love love the civilians and and the ordinary people at the end of the day. But tell us, what about um, more about Hungary? What was its wider impact, and why does it make the list in the end? Well, I think Hungary is important because it's the first country that actively tries to uh, leave the Warsaw Pact. you know, there have been uprisings in East Germany in 53, but Hungary is the first country and the first government who actually tries to leave um, Soviet orbit. Um, but, you know, there, there are other occasions later on it, with Czechoslovakia in, in 1968, uh, which ends, albeit in a, in a less bloody fashion. But it's interesting because Hungary, after 1956, when you look at the 70s and the 1980s, it does become one of the most liberal of the Warsaw Pact countries. I mean, there's a there's a term that's given out where, where they're, they're described as the happiest barracks in the block. I can't remember who uh, who said that, but I, I always like that term. I do like that term, actually. So, Alina, why Warsaw Pact before that? Well, no, because it's more of a military sort of thing. It was a it was a power power statement against uh, the rising NATO. I don't know. I just thought I'd throw it in there and mix it up. You a just little like bit. being argumentative, don't you? I do. I do like it. Sorry. <laughs> there is no argument about the next one because this, I think, is on everyone's list unless they're just being argumentative for the sake of being argumentative, and that's Me. the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah, the the Cuban Missile Crisis it is the one that's generally on everybody's list, and it's it's worth talking about the background to this because you know that, that you get a lot of focus on oh it's missiles on Cuba that 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 triggered this, but it yeah. was in response to uh well it it sort of came about due to the failed Bay of Pigs invasion in 1961, which was an attempt to oust Castro uh, with a U.S. backed invasion using uh, a load of uh, Cuban emigres. But the Cuban missile also came about, you know, one of the other things that that triggered it was that the US had deployed ballistic missiles in Italy and Turkey. So right on, well, certainly in Turkey, right on the border of the Soviet Union. Um, But Cuba had also requested to have nuclear missiles on uh, the island to help deter a future invasion. But you know, as far as President Kennedy was concerned, there was no way he could accept having nuclear armed missiles, you know, 90 miles away from the US mainland. So a naval blockade was put in place in October. Um, and it, it got very tense because the, the ships were getting closer and closer to, uh, well, the, the missiles were already deployed, but there were other resupply ships. Uh, moving towards Cuba and the US Navy was determined to um, hold this blockade. So there was a lot of tense negotiations um, around this time. But what, what's less known is how close the world really came to nuclear war then, because as part of the blockade, the US Navy were dropping what was known as signaling depth charges to let Soviet submarines know they'd been detected. But what the US didn't realize was that um, 
Soviet submarines were, were allowed to fire if they were damaged by depth charges. And some of these submarines were armed with nuclear-tipped torpedoes. Ouch. There was one particular submarine where uh, the B-59, where the captain thought that war might have already started and wanted to launch a nuclear torpedo. And the decision required the agreement of all of his officers on board. But one of them, a guy named Vasily Arkhipov, objected and the nuclear launch didn't happen. So that's how close we really came to, because if that had gone off, you know, it, it just could have triggered global nuclear war. So what, what's, what happened was the event, what the Soviets agreed to was to withdraw uh, the missiles from Cuba, but the Americans also secretly agreed that they would withdraw these Jupiter, Jupiter um, missiles that they deployed in, in Turkey as well. Um, but it was, you know, it, it, it was a, a tense, a very tense moment and probably the closest the world ever came to uh, global nuclear war. And what was its wider impact on the Cold War going forward? Did it make that, people think twice? Yes, I, th I think it absolutely did. I mean, as, as a result of the Cuban Missile Crisis, a hotline was put in between Moscow and Washington to try and avoid any uh, misunderstandings. Um, and I, I, I think, you know, Khrushchev, you know, w realized that he had pushed things too far there i mean there there'd been other incidents in and around that period there was a confrontation in berlin as well on right at checkpoint charlie where soviet tanks and american tanks were faced facing barrel to barrel um across checkpoint charlie and there's some very famous photos of there of a really tense standoff there so but but cuba was one that i think you know the both sides blinked and thought Whoa, this got really close and it, it could have, you know, really kicked off. I mean, I totally agree with the Cuban Missile Crisis, but I'm going to throw another one in the mix for you just for fun. Go on. I like doing this. Right. Are you ready? Are you ready for my yeah. opinion, which is completely useless? <laughs> it's not. Are you ready? Don't, Are you ready don't sell yourself short uh, here, Alina. Come on. So I'm not. I'm not. I'm not a Cold War historian. I, I had to study this at uni, so I'm, I'm, you know. But are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready um, for my awesome argument? Go on. This is it's not going to be as shit as the Sun Tzu argument. In no, no. But we are going that way. We're going okay, to that go part on. of the earth. So go right. On. Are you ready? The Sino-Soviet split. Love it. I think that is probably for me the most exciting thing to do with the Cold War because it is just so stupid. It it is it is, and it it's it's uh, an interesting one because I mean uh, you know China and the Soviet Union actually you know had some armed conflicts along that border as well over some of the islands that they um, disagreed you know disagreed over, um, but. Uh, you know, I, I think that there are other, well, it's not about excitement. It's about other things that really had major impact. And I don't think the Sino-Soviet split had as, as major an impact as some of the other ones on my list. And I accept that some of the ones on my list are very Eurocentric. 
and that yes, is I agree. always I agree. a challenge um with these when you you know when you're tying it down to you know you only gave me six to to choose <laughs> you should have given him 20 alex 20 yeah but then we would have been here all day by the time you started sticking your oar in <laughs> no no that's fine because what we could have done we, we could have do part, part one. two exactly yeah you know what? we should do the following six on part two i'm liking this well we but haven't even know... done we've only done half of the first six first so what's next i know Alina? i know i think alex has purposefully given me this one i really think this has been you know we all know alex? you love any excuse to talk about poland let's go we do <laughs> right, so we, we're going to talk, but, well, this is before I was born anyway. So 1980, uh, Solidarity, or in Polish, Solidarność, uh, free, Polish Free Trade Union. Can you explain more about this? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Okay, so Poland, it's safe to say, was not the happiest barrack in the block um, through uh, it, its time under under Soviet control. There'd been a number of uprisings or or protests uh, in Poland, namely uh, 1956 in Poznan um, and in the 1970s. And these were mainly due to the uh, the Polish communist government trying to bring in price rises and changes to the working conditions. And by the end of the 70s, or even probably before then, the Polish economy was in quite a mess. Um, also key at this period is a Polish pope was elected in 1978, which, um, you know, Catholicism and the Catholic Church was still a very big force in Poland, even under communist rule. It was never something that the communists could actively um, suppress uh, like some of the other governments in in some of the other Warsaw Pact countries. Um, but in 1980, um, the Western finance, uh, you know, the banks uh, had been, well, they've been, the West had been providing loans to the Polish government um, for quite some time, but they were given an ultimatum in July 1980 that, um, that they could no longer be using these loans to subsidize the artificially low price of um, consumer goods. And this was why they'd been trying to introduce these price rises through the 1970s um, as well, was to try and reduce the amount of subsidy they were having to um, to pay out. So um, the government 
then the Polish government then announced uh, a range of price rises, which resulted in strikes and factory occupations um, starting almost almost immediately. And in Gdansk on the 14th of August, a uh, electrician who'd previously been fired from the Lenin shipyards named Lech Valenza, uh, climbed over the shipyard gate and uh, headed the strike committee. And amongst the 21 demands that they had were the establishment of a free trade union. So there were trade unions in Poland prior to this point, but they were very much um, communist uh, organized organizations. So, And this was unprecedented in the Eastern Bloc to have an organization set up completely independent of government control so what is its wider impact on the cold war and tell us why does it make the list because well, it should that, make the list obviously absolutely anything <laughs> polish should make the list alina i mean it stands exactly. for reasons uh, <laughs> we've already given her our own program every week don't encourage her <laughs> <laughs> any any historians that want to talk more about this get in contact please there you go there there there's a there's an offer nobody can refuse. Um, so the 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 reason this is important is this this is the one of the first bricks that starts falling out of the Warsaw Pact's um, wall and and er- eroding its uh, ability to uh, control the countries of of the Warsaw Pact. Um, Solidarity grows massively as a trade union through 1980 and into 1981. But in 1981, um, there the uh, leader of the Polish Communist Party, General Jaruzelski, um, declares martial law in December 1981. He is fearful of the country falling into civil war. And there's an element that he's fearful of Soviet tanks coming in in the same way that they did in Hungary in 56 and Czechoslovakia in 1968. Although more recent research indicates that they were, the Soviet Union was aware of the implications of doing that and didn't think that that was going to be the best solution. Um, so that there may not have been a Soviet, uh, you know, actual plans for a Soviet invasion, but certainly there, there was threatening exercises, um, around the border but um so solidarity is uh goes underground a load of its leaders are arrested but but Yaroslavsky realizes that that he can't keep suppressing and and stifling this this organization so martial law does um is uh removed and solidarity starts to reappear uh again and in 1988, the government starts to get into conversations with them. And in 1989, June 89, there is an election where solidarity is actually allowed to stand its own candidates. So it's, you know, it, it, it is the first chink in the armor of that monolith that appears as uh, the Warsaw Pact, I think. And, and, and that's why I think it's important. I agree. Um, I agree. I'm going to move on to 1987, by which point Alina and I were both born. Um, and you've just put <laughs> Gorbachev. Talk to us. What did he do in 1987? Yeah, well, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, um, he became... Uh, the leader of the Communist Party in, ni- in 1985. And it's a, it's an interesting story 
with Gorbachev, which I'll very briefly go through. But he um, started out as the Communist Party leader in Stavropol, uh, a region of the Soviet Union. And um, he, you know, moved up and moved into the Politburo. And after Brezhnev, who was one of the last Soviet leaders, died, he was succeeded by a guy called Yuri Andropov, who was the former head of the KGB. Um, and Andropov said that he wanted Gorbachev to be the next leader when, when he died. But the Politburo at the time thought that he was too young and experienced and made uh, Konstantin Shenenko the leader, who was very elderly and seriously ailing. I'm not sure he made any Politburo meetings because he was so ill. And he died about a year later, and that resulted in Gorbachev being made... Uh, the general secretary of the central committee of the communist party nice uh, succinct name there um but effectively that made him the leader of the soviet union um and um yeah 1987 is not a particular year that i've i've picked on but it, it's it's sort of when uh work with the with the west and um things really start moving it in the soviet union i mean there's a, there's a couple of uh key points in gorbachev's career 1984 he visits the uk um and meets margaret thatcher and she becomes a massive fan of gorbachev and she's one of the key people that convinces Reagan, Ronald Reagan, who was the US president at the time, that they should be working with him. In fact, Thatcher's famous quote is, I like Mr. Gorbachev, we can do business together. Um, and Reagan meets with Gorbachev uh, in 85. But one of the most impressive meetings is the one in 1986 in Reykjavik, where Reagan and Gorbachev agree to get rid of all strategic nuclear weapons both the US and the Soviet nuclear weapons. However, Reagan insists that uh, he still retains his um, strategic defense initiative program, which was known as Star Wars, which was like an anti-ballistic missile um, research project. And that becomes the sticking point and the agreement falls apart and they, they don't, they don't agree on it, but it could have been an earth shattering um, agreement in, in 1986 and could have made the world a much, um, safer place. Obviously, it didn't cover Chinese nuclear weapons or, um, other nuclear armed nations around the world, but it was a, a stunning, uh, potential piece of diplomacy and one of those fascinating historical what ifs. But it's safe to say that without Gorbachev, the, the Soviet Union might even still be with us today, a bit like North Korea is now. It, it could have it could have continued on. I didn't think of it like that, really. That's why you're no, not I'm... answering the questions. No, uh, well, <laughs> I've, been, I've been made to think now, which is I know. Really good. Well, lo I, th I think you'll find loads of people will probably disagree with that. I mean, you know, that that's the great thing about history and about, you know, conversations with people is everybody has a different opinion. Um, I mean, you know, saying the Soviet Union might still be here now is probably a big ask, but I think it certainly could have continued for another decade or so. Um, and certainly without Gorbachev, who, you know, he was a reformer. He, When he was at university, he became close friends with somebody who was later 
um, one of the prime movers of the Prague Spring, which was when Czechoslovakia tried to leave the um, the Soviet orbit. So he was very early on exposed to reformist elements, and he he was a reformer. He just wanted the Communist Party to still retain its um, uh, you know to, for for the Communist Party to still be the the main organizer of of the country. But you know as as things began to unravel, he became much more of a of a of a social democrat. That's really excellent. Oh no, I was about to say really interesting. But our final final point on the list: if anybody doesn't have this, you're oh, out. Get out. <laughs> get out so, of our podcast. <laughs> get out. We did a whole so, program on this. Right, go on. Exactly, which is going to go up. Today is it today? It is today, today is the, yeah. It is today. Today, which is the which we don't even know which the date today is. Today is. Oh, it's, it's well, Alina, we've recorded so many of these, and then because we don't record them on the day they go out, generally it's all mixed up. I don't know what day it is. I'm, exactly, I pretty much people. don't even know my own name anymore. Thirteenth of April, people. I just checked on the laptop, but <laughs> but we are going to the fall of the wall in 1989. So go for it, Ian. Talk to us about it. Right. Well, uh, just move back a bit from from the fall of the wall. I mentioned Hungary earlier and about it being the happiest barracks in in the block. And Hungary um, began the process of democratization earlier than most of the other Warsaw Pact countries, apart from possibly Poland. Um, and they were keen to get Western loans and to, you know, interact much more with, more with the West. And they began to dismantle their border defenses they had next to Austria. So it wasn't a wall. It was, it was fencing there. Um, and that became uh, a weakness in East Germany's policy of trying to keep all its um, population inside and behind the wall because East Germans could holiday in Hungary because it was a member of the Warsaw Pact and the, you know, the border defences had, had been there there for years. So East Germans began to leave East Germany via Hungary. And indeed, there was a, a famous uh, picnic that was set up called the Pan-European Picnic, which was pre-organised by... Um, a number of Western organizations and, uh, and it was arranged that the border gates would be opened at this picnic and loads, hundreds of, um, possibly thousands of East Germans crossed the, you know, crossed the border that day. But also they were packing out the West German embassies in, or the West German embassy in Prague and, uh, the leader of uh, East Germany, who was Eric Honecker at the time, he'd been leader since the 1970s, um, agreed that these uh, people who were in the embassy, the East Germans who were in the West German embassy, would be allowed to leave by train, but that train needed to pass through East Germany. Um, so the trains passed through East Germany, and a lot of people tried to uh, get into the railway stations these trains were running through in East Germany. So there were large demonstrations uh, to, uh, you know, there, there were organisations being formed as well. There was an organisation called Neues Forum, who was uh, made up of uh, people from the church and to some degree in environmentalists as well. But there was an increasing um, feeling that, in East Germany, that things can't go on, 
uh, it was pretty similar to Poland, you know, that, that things weren't working. Um, the, uh, consumer goods weren't being, um, you know, provided on a, on a regular basis, you know, uh, state control was just not, not working. So demonstrations started to get larger and larger in Leipzig and Dresden and, and, and Berlin. And the East German leadership decided to remove Eric Honecker. And he was replaced by a guy called Egon Krentz, who was one of uh, Honecker's protégés. So the general population didn't trust Egon Krentz either. Um, but what Krentz did is he tried to make some changes. And one of the changes that he he was going to make, because he knew this was one of the main uh, problems that the East Germans had, was the freedom to travel. So he wanted to implement implement um the ability to travel but you had to get a visa to exit uh east germany and uh this was going to be announced at a press conference on the evening of the 9th of november um but uh the government spokesman a guy called gunter shabowski was uh given a piece of paper and told to announce this he wasn't briefed properly and when the press asked him, well, when, when does this start? When does this start? And it was supposed to start the next day. Um, Gunter Shabowski said, uh, immediately, so fort, um, it, it starts immediately. And that resulted in huge pressure on the border crossings in East Berlin. Loads of people came out of their houses and up to the border crossings and said, look, we've been told we can, you know, we can cross into West Berlin, you know, open the gate, you know, let, let us go out. And the border guards had not been briefed. They couldn't get hold of their superiors. So their only options were to open fire on these crowds or to open the gates. And, well, you know what they decided. They they opened the gates and the genie was then out of the bottle. Um, and, you know, East Germany disappeared as a country within, you know, just over a year from that moment of opening the gates in Berlin and then the whole you know reunification of Germany the withdrawal of Soviet troops from from Eastern Europe and pretty soon there was a domino effect Czechoslovakia followed uh in December in the the um the uh Velvet Revolution and uh all all of the other Warsaw Pact countries um their leadership fell um the bloodiest though was in Romania with Ceausescu where there was, um, massive conflict there and, and Ceausescu and his, and his wife were, um, uh, tried and, um, and, and shot by, uh, by the army there. But with, without the fall of the Berlin Wall, the, that whole domino effect throughout Eastern Europe, I, I think probably wouldn't have happened. Absolutely agree. Um, thank you so much for coming on to give us your half a dozen key moments in the Cold War. I, it's, I think it serves as a great overview of some of the major events and themes that shaped it. Um, I just, I'm overawed by the fact that, I mean, my war lasts for five years, Alina's is five years, and then, sorry, six years, and then yours lasts like six decades and nearly, yeah. and you, your knowledge is astounding. Thanks so much for coming on and sharing it with us. 
Well, no, it's 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 my pleasure. And can I just say a little bit about Cold War Conversations? Please do, yeah. Tell us about your podcast if people are spurred on to learn more about the Cold War. Well, if if people want to learn more, I mean, Cold War Conversations, the, the tagline that we have is is in conversation with those that experience the Cold War and those that are fascinated. And so it's a series of interviews with people who live through the Cold War um, yeah. But what I'm particularly interested in is the unknown stories, the stories that don't make the history books. So I find people all over the place who lived in East Germany, Romania, Hungary, wherever, and they're military or civilian. And it's descriptions of, you know, what was everyday life like in, in Poland? What, what was it? What was it like? You know, how, how did you shop? What clothes did you have access to? What was your education like? You know, were you taught Marxism, Leninism at school? What age was that? All of those those uh, pieces that, that make up the lived experience of the Cold War, we try and encompass in Cold War conversations. And currently we're at about 117 episodes, which I worked out the other day is four days of audio. So uh, I'm not asking you to listen to four days, but I, I believe there's some real nuggets there. So just search for Cold War Conversations in your podcast app and you'll find us right next to History Hack. Perfect. I don't know what I'll be listening to tonight. <laughs> no, you won't. We've got work to do. More work. We don't stop. When lockdown is find... over, it. <laughs> I don't know how you find time to do anything else. The the the. The volume of uh, interviews you're doing is phenomenal. If there was an Olympics in interviewing, you would be definitely up there on the podium. Uh, oh, there is a trade-off. You. We have all gone insane, but thank you for your words. <laughs> <laughs> Join us tomorrow when we will be talking to the amazing Emma Southern about ancient Rome. We will be talking about lesser-known rulers and lesser-known ethnicities as well. We're going to be talking Syrian matriarchs. It's fantastic. Don't miss it. Don't forget, you can now become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month, which we would appreciate muchly by going to www.historyhack.podbean.com. Um, and we would love to keep going after this mess is over, um, but we need your help. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower. And I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.